So uh, with us is Richard Baker, who's chairman of Whitbread and uh, DFS, among uh, a long career, including Boots, Asda, and so on. We've just finished our leadership series talk, um, and we're going to ask him a, a couple of brief questions. With me is uh, Asher, and this is Ben. Great. Okay. So just firstly, Richard, um, so how are the cost-cutting measures you sort of implemented at Boots achieved? Um, or received, pardon me. So I guess I was just wondering when it happened, I mean, what were the main sort of learnings and, and challenges that you faced with, with all the cost-cutting measures you had to take? Yeah, cost-cutting is one of the hardest things and least pleasant things that have to be done at certain times. Even in successful companies, sometimes you want to move costs around in a business and spend less on a certain area and, and more on another area. So it's not necessarily always in a, in a crisis situation that costs have to be cut. Again, what I've learned about about the decision-making process is be decisive. Invariably, in my experience, if you need to take cost out, take a bit more out in the first attempt, because you will find you'll need to put some back in a few places where you really have cut too deep. So I've, I've learnt to start, if you need to make a £10 million saving, try and find 12, because implement 12 and you'll find that if it's 12 spread across half a dozen different initiatives, one of them will be uh, more negative than you realise you might want to put a bit back so whatever you need always go for a bit more and give yourself a little bit of, of buffer that you can move it around if it involves people and often cost cutting does involve people what I've learned is the most important thing is to give people certainty quickly um, there was one very difficult day early in my time at Boots I think it was you know first week of January 2004 I joined in September 2003 everybody knew we had to cut our costs and start to be a bit more competitive bring our prices down uh, we didn't do anything pre-Christmas because it was such an important trading period and to have disruption in the company would be unhelpful, but everybody sort of knew it was coming. And we, we announced a 1,000 redundancies in a head office of 3,000, so we took a third of the jobs out. But by the end of that day, every individual person out of 3,000 knew whether they had or didn't have a job on day one. And we then, albeit, you know, there's no celebration of, of what had to be done, but I do think we did it in a very, very clear and quick way. And there's a little saying, uh, people uh, prefer the certainty of misery to the misery of uncertainty. And I think it's a leader's job to eliminate uncertainty as quickly as possible, because people will sort themselves out as long as they know what's happening to them. So back to a similar point I was making in the speech earlier in response to a good question around uh, hourly paid people. Giving them certainty of hours is the next most important thing after their rate of pay. So just create certainty for people. They can handle it. It's uncertainty that is really difficult. Um, yeah. And uh, when you were going through the merger between um, Boots and Alliance, um, you mentioned there that the biggest challenge was probably the, the culture clash. Um, in retrospect, is there anything you'd have done differently or anything that, if you're ever involved in a merger in the future, you might look at? That's a really good question. It sort of went pretty well because, again, we lived by the principle I've just explained of eliminate uncertainty on day one. Everybody who had a new job knew what their new job was on day one and who was reporting to them and who they were reporting to. Um, as far as the bit that merged, because you had two large operating companies that actually the operations carried on generally quite distinctly, but it all came together and the merger was largely at the top. We again created certainty as quickly as possible, day one. We did describe behavioural norms. Um, I don't know whether it was right or it was wrong, but we made a decision before we merged, we were not going to fire people. 
um, and certainly not in the early period. But just because people clashed, we knew it was inevitable they would. And nobody left out of the top 100 in the first year, which is really unusual. Now, I don't know with hindsight whether that was right or wrong, really. Um, but we felt that if you start firing people in a new world, you breed a huge fear culture. Mm. And I used an expression earlier of a drive-by shooting. When people just disappear out of organisations, that creates a lot of fear everywhere else. And if you're trying to get an organisation to drive on and to take risks and to do new things... Um, I think you have to be very careful firing people. I mean, if you fire p people, it's got to be for completely explicit reasons that everybody gets. Just because somebody's having a culture clash with somebody else isn't a good enough reason. Mm. The textbooks will often say, you know, move very quickly on all the people issues. And in a turnaround, you know, I described the day one at Asda, moving quickly there. But we were very patient. And I don't, I don't honestly know whether it was right or wrong. It was certainly pretty painful. Because as I said, I spent a lot of time doing marriage guidance counselling between people who just didn't get on. Mm. Um, but it was actually generally because they weren't bad people, they just come from different cultural norms. And as people started to work in one way, meetings will start on time. This is not you know, continental Europe, and by and large they will finish on time yeah. because this is Great Britain and that's <laughs> sort of how we do stuff around here. All of that just generally got a bit easier because people knew what was expected of each other. Sure. So was that all driven through by the chairman, by, by Nigel? Um, well, I, think, we... I think he sat a very he sat a very British way of doing things in that sort of respect. On the other hand, Stefano brought some brilliant uh, entrepreneurial and more adventurous and braver decision making, uh, because he he'd been a, you know he he came from almost a standing start at the age of forty with a small family business in southern Italy, and now he's running the largest pharmacy company in the world, and he's an amazing entrepreneur and deal doer. To be fair to Nigel, Nigel's a great deal doer, an entrepreneur, actually. But between the both of them, and with my enthusiasm, we, we did really get the whole company moving much faster and making decisions much more quickly, and that was pretty alien for the Boots people. And as I said, it wasn't a particular fault. They were pharmacists, and they were trained safety first, and that drives out risk. And business is about risk and reward, I'm afraid. And um, you know, So I think we got a lot of very valuable things from, from the Alliance Unicam side as well. They were more adventurous, they were more courageous, they were more confident. They had been winning, we had been losing. You know, you bring a different mood to the table. So I, I genuinely think it, it turned out well and we did get the best of both from it. Excellent. And then just lastly, Richard, um, your, your background seems to be predominantly in sort of sales and marketing. Do, mm. do you feel that's sort of the best route or you know, a very good route to take if you want to... Sort of get to the top it's not the best I think it's the most fun by a long way I mean I've, <laughs> yeah. I've just always, I've loved what I've done and I love what I do now and um, there's something very positive about sales and marketing you know you're out there trying to grow the top line of a business basically that's you know that is the core responsibility of the sales and marketing function um, I've always liked being in the thick of it I wouldn't really I don't think I'd have enjoyed my career as much if I'd been in what I might call a staff function you know finance or HR or IT I've liked being at the front end of how do we make this business bigger, better for customers? I think I've just found that always intriguing. And if your business is dead simple, as I've talked about, cups of coffee, sofas, paracetamol, you are a consumer yourself, so it's not really hard to figure out what people want because A, you're a customer yourself, and B, if you go out and talk to enough people. You know, when I play hockey on Saturday, the people I play hockey with will give me an opinion of my products. And you're constantly picking up consumer research. So as long as you've got big flappy ears and a reasonable central processing unit, you can sort of figure out what to do because it's not terribly complicated.
the number of people on our course that once we found out where we work, give us feedback on Costa or whatever else is phenomenal. <laughs> no. It's incessant, isn't it? Yeah. If you work in consumer businesses, there's not a day go by where somebody doesn't say, oh, Richard, I must tell you this story mm. about what happened in one of your stores the other day or this product I've bought. It's happened for 30 years. But you have to, even though at times it can be irritating when you sort of try and have a Friday night <laughs> off at a dinner party, yeah. you've got to regard it as a gift because people are telling you what to do if you're mm. listening. And that's why you don't need to be a rocket scientist to run consumer businesses. They're very real, they're very fast, they're very exciting. And uh, I've always enjoyed people, actually. More than anything, I, I've liked being with big groups of people, and it's fun in these sort of big consumer businesses because it's really leading a big army to get a job done. Hmm. Fantastic. Excellent. Richard, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. And yeah, no, thank you, Richard.